are growing weary and are praying. And when we wonder if it is really worthwhile to pray, when the results are not what we ask for, what do we do? Well, let's see what our Lord teaches his disciples to do. And the first thing that Jesus does, and our first point this morning, is he, he, he teaches them and he shows them the substance of, of our prayer. Now, I love how Jesus teaches us to pray. He, do, he doesn't go into this elaborate, systematic teaching on prayer. But he jumps right into this wonderful prayer. Now, I don't know about you guys and how you guys like to be taught, but for me, and maybe it's the way I'm made, it's hard for me to pay close attention when someone is teaching me something in a systematic way. Like when you sit in a classroom and the teacher is giving you some lecture and and it goes something like, there are five steps to commune with God. Step number one, we uh, uh, find a quiet place. Step number two, we uh, get in a position of not being comfortable. Step number three, you know, those kind of things. It's hard for me to keep track of that. I don't know if it's just my poor education or, or what, but, but I love reading how Jesus teaches. You see, Jesus is not about to go systematic here. He is going to start with... He is going to start to teach them how to pray, and he's not going to start with a, with a basic prayer one-on-one. He's not going to start with, hey, well, okay, let's, uh, let's start with thanksgiving, and thanksgiving is going to lead us to supplication, and supplication is going to lead us to worship. No, he doesn't do that. What he does is that right away he takes them to prayer. He takes them right away to this big varsity pinnacle, mature yet simple prayer. And he's going to say to them, you pray like this. So let's look at it. He said to them, when you pray, and the Greek word used here is whenever. So whenever you pray, whenever you close your eyes, whenever you're in your car, whenever you're on your knees, whenever you're just walking through the store, whenever you're just praying, whenever it's time for you to pray, it should look like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So let's stop here and let's take a look at why this, this is a pinnacle prayer. Why is this what I like to call a high level praying? And he starts it this way. He says, whenever you pray, anytime you pray, here's what it looks like. Our Father, hallowed be your name. You see, Jesus is teaching us that mature prayer starts with the pursuing of God's glory. You see, unfortunately, we often pray first of things or of friends. We pray for family members and events. Instead, Jesus is showing us that our prayer needs to start with God. Our primary petition is for God's glory to be revealed. The word hallowed is, is one that is normally used in our day. It's not normally used in our day and age. But the closest word we can use to define the word hollow is holy. 
And Jesus is not asking God to be holy. God is infinitely holy. He is the Alpha and the Omega, meaning there, was never, there has never been a time in eternity past when God was not hallowed, and there will never be a time in eternity future when his name will not be hallowed. But Jesus' petition is that God's glorious name be honored by others and by us. His desire is that we would acknowledge in our prayers the greatness of his name. So he is saying, great is your name. Let your name, let your renown, let your reputation, let who you are be seen and magnified and glorified and exalted and loved and wondered about and written about and pursued. So whenever we pray, it's God-centered. Whatever we're praying about, no matter what it is, the cry of our hearts is not a certain thing, but that a certain thing, God's name, be magnified and his glory revealed. Now, is this our primary desire when we pray? That our hearts would see God as the greatest need That our kids, that our family, that our friends, that our neighbors would be able to know him. And that everything I ask for in my life and everything my heart desires is but a means to honor him. Or are we so caught up in our idolatrous hearts that whenever that thing we are asking God for, we have risen up to the point where we are saying, I want this. I deserve this. I should get this. I want it, and I want it to play the way that I want it to play. When we do that, what we're saying is that what we want is not the name or the renown of God to be exalted. What we want is to exalt that thing we're asking for instead of God. In other words, what we're doing is we're using God as a means to get that instead of using that as a means to glorify God. And so our petition has become our God. And Jesus wants us to begin praying by honoring God's holy name. And after praying for God's reputation, we then pray for his rule. Look at verse 2. It says, your kingdom come. See, Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God since the beginning of his public ministry. But here in the second petition, he teaches his disciples to pray for its coming. See, the kingdom of God is not a nation state. It is not a, a system of government or a geographical region or a political map. Very simple. God's kingdom is God's rule. It is the sovereign administration of his authority over creation, over his enemies, and over the people who honor him as their king. Thus, the second petition is a prayer for the glory of God. To pray for the kingdom is to pray for God's glorious rule to bring all things under his reign. And so when we pray this, we pray this for ourselves. We're asking God to reign in our hearts by faith. When we pray this, we pray this for our homes. When we pray this, we pray this for our church. 
When we pray this, we pray this for our city. When we pray this, we pray this for our friends. Jesus wants us to learn and he wants his disciples to learn that our prayers are the expression of a longing to see God's name glorified and his rule recognized in our lives and in the lives of others. Jesus is not just throwing these words in the beginning of his prayer saying, hey guys, make sure that, uh, make sure that before you speak to the main man, you know, you give him a few flattering lines in order to sort of soften him up so that he can give you what you want. That's not what Jesus is doing. Now, if you have young kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? Daddy... I love you. <laughs> Daddy, can you buy me a new toy? But that's not what Jesus is doing here. You see, Jesus moves from petitions concerning God's glory to petitions concerning man's good, but he's not going to leave behind this line of thinking in his prayer, ever. Let me show you what I mean. He says, Father, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Now we can't read this out of context. We can't go, okay, one petition, two petitions, three petitions, four, five, and read them as if the petitions are independent of one another. Because that's not what's happening in this prayer. He says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. In other words, glorify your name and manifest your rule in my circumstances today. Let yourself be seen great, mighty, powerful, almighty. Not outside my circumstances and needs, but in them. And so he names our needs in three categories, beginning with provision. He says, give us each day our daily bread. So if we read it in context, okay, and not take it out of its context, what he's saying is, give me everything I need today to see you hallowed. Give me today's portion. Give me today's bread. No more or less than that so that I might have the strength, the mercy, the energy, the grace, and the wits to hallow your name in every area of my life today. So at home, at work, at play, in the thoughts of my mind, in the energies of my heart, give me today my daily bread so that I might hallow your name. The prayer is still about God. Even though he's asking for personal provisions, the prayer is still about God. Let me illustrate this for you. In Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, the writer of Proverbs writes this. He says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty poverty, nor riches. But give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You see that? You see, his concern is the name and renown of God on both ends of the spectrum. He said, don't make me wealthy. If you make me too wealthy, I'll go, well, who's God? 
I don't need God. But don't make me poor either, because if you make me poor, then I'm going to steal some stuff. You see, this is God-centered prayer. This is prayer with God's glory as its primary petition and not your own. His concern is the name and renown of God, not his circumstances. He goes, listen, I know my heart, God. Give me today just what I need today. Don't give me more. Don't give me less. This is also dependent prayer. It acknowledges that God in his infinite wisdom knows exactly what we need and when we need it. You see, we are not anxiously asking God for next month's needs. But we are trusting him, asking him for today. This does not mean that we can never pray for anything that goes beyond our daily bread. In fact, the Bible tells us that the abund- out of the abundance of his grace, God often gives us even greater gifts. The Bible tells us that he can do abundantly more than what we ask for. But the Lord's prayer teaches us to know the difference between our needs and our greeds. You said in the daily life of prayer, our main petition is for things that will exalt his name and bring about his reign in our lives. And so Jesus reminds us of our greatest need before God. And that is the need of forgiveness. Our daily breath consists not only of our physical need, but also of our spiritual one. And so the Lord teaches us that when we come in prayer before God, we come as sinners. And this is how we must always come to God. Not confident on our own righteousness, but pleading for his mercy and his grace. And that is why he says, and forgive us our sins. You see, we come to God in prayer with no, we, we, get, we need to come to God in prayer and we can't come to God with no mention of brokenness. We can't come to God with no mention of short circuits within our own spirit. No mention of the fact that we're not there yet. And Jesus is reminding us of that. He says, when you pray, pray this way. Forgive us our sins. And then he acknowledges that when, when grace has taken root in the person's heart, they become able, not only, not only are they forgiven, but they become able to extend forgiveness and to extend grace. As we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, many of you know that I grew up in a broken home. And prior to experiencing God's forgiveness, I was a bitter young man. I was a bitter young man. I held hard feelings towards my father for abandoning us. And in my heart, I judged my mother with very little grace and mercy. But once the Lord extended his grace and mercy and forgiveness to me, I was not only compelled, but I was enabled to extend that grace and mercy and forgiveness to them. And there are a few things more miserable than a human being who expects everyone to extend him or her grace and mercy, but refuses to give it to anyone else. And lastly, our Lord reminds us of our need of God's protection. And he says, once again, verse 4, 
and lead us not into temptation. So this prayer is still about God. And here's what he's saying. Very simple, guys. We can start trying to figure out all these things. Okay, so what do you mean? Does God tempt us? You know, I mean, we could, really what Jesus is saying is, God, help me. When you pray, tell your father to help you. That's all it is. This is a petition that does not imply that God is ever the one who tempts us. In fact, the Bible warns us never to say that God is tempting us. In James chapter 1, verse 13, he says, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So whenever we are tempted, therefore, it is by the wickedness of our own sinful desires. But God is able to protect us in this time of temptation and even to lead us away from a particular temptation entirely, which is the reason why we are asking when we pray what what our Lord teaches us to pray. Help us, Lord. Help us. Jesus wants us to acknowledge that even the righteous man is tempted, yet this is just filled with, with good news for us, church. Think about it. Think about it, that we can come to God and we can say, forgive us our sins as we forgive, our, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and we can say, and lead us not into temptation. Do you understand how much of a good news that is? That sinners like us can still approach and men and women who are still drawn to things that are unrighteous and are not to the place where they have gotten victory over these things can still come to him and say, Lord, help me, help me, lead me not into temptation, protect me, guide me and cover me. This is a beautiful prayer. And it's God-centered. It's all about God, God, God. And we have seen examples throughout all scripture of these kind of prayers. Is this not Christ in the garden hours before his crucifixion? Is this not Paul in Acts chapter 20 on his way to Jerusalem? This is not a give me a million dollars prayer. This is not so many of those self-centered prayers that fill most of our minds. But Jesus doesn't stop his lesson on prayer there. He continues from showing us the substance of our prayer to the posture of our prayer. So let's look at the posture of our prayer uh, point number two. It is here that we are able to see that God's desire for our prayer life is not just that we have every angle taken care of. God's desire is not for our content to be perfectly. You see, so many times we are so focused on the right words coming out of our mouths, especially when we pray in public. But what Jesus is about to show us is is what should be the posture of our hearts when we pray. And he does this through an illustration Once again, I love the way Jesus teaches. He definitely thought about slow learners like myself when he was teaching this. And so he gives us an illustration. He says, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. 
The door is now shut and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So here's Jesus bringing a situation in his trademark masterful way to drive home a point. And he frames this situation in a question because he wants them and he wants us to think about it and to answer it. So let me give you the situation first. This is a situation, okay? You have a friend, you, that's right, Jose Fabregas, Al Peter, you have a friend, okay? You have a friend and this friend of yours comes to you unexpectedly at your house at midnight. And he's been on a long journey, and he's hungry. There's no Walmart. There's no 24-hour Taco Bell. And you have no food in your, in your pantries, okay? So what do you do? And here's where Jesus introduces this question to us in verse 5. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. So what Jesus is saying is, okay, Al, would you go to a friend at midnight and ask him for three loaves? That's what he's saying. But before Jesus allows us to answer the question, Jesus says, let me tell you how he's going to answer, okay? Let me tell you what he's going to say. He's going to say, don't bother me. My door is shut. My children are in bed with me. Go away. And so the question that Jesus wants us to think about is, what would you do? This is your situation. This is your option. This is your neighbor's response. And how would you, how would you do, do it? What would you do? What, would you still go? So if the story stopped at verse 7, what would your answer be? Would it be perhaps something like, hey, man, there's no way my neighbor is going to help me, so I'm not going. I mean, what's the point of going through the trouble? I have, I have a need. Yes, I have a big need. I have my friend. He's come over. He's hungry. I have a need. But, he's, but my neighbor, man, he's not going to help me. He doesn't care. So no way. I'm not going. I'm not going through that trouble. Isn't that how we often feel about God? We have needs. We have problems. We have empty pantries, empty bank accounts, empty spiritual accounts. We have challenging relationships. We have besetting sins. We have children that won't respond. We feel weak, but deep down, perhaps because we have asked in the past, we feel God's not going to answer. He's not going to help me. Why bother praying? And I'm sure that that that, that is what the disciples are thinking as Jesus is saying to them, which one of you would go to a friend's house at midnight asking for bread? And they're probably thinking, no way, not me, Lord. I would not go. But Jesus turns the story around in verse 8, and he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's a, his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus is saying to us, you might refuse to go knock at your friend's house because everything points to his rejection of your petition. But I tell you that even though he might not be willing to give you what you ask for because he is your friend, but he will give it to you because of your shameless asking. 
Jesus is teaching us that our posture before God in prayer needs to be one of shameless boldness. We come to God boldly in prayer. Just, just look at the context of the parable, okay? The man comes to his friend's house at midnight, and he boldly asks for three loaves of bread. I mean, he's just knocking. Hey, man, give me three loaves of bread. I mean, that is shameless, even if you're Cuban. But what we learn is that the man has a great need. He has a great need and he has impudence. In other words, he is shameless. And Jesus is illustrating this for us, not in light of the man who is unwilling to get out of bed as if God is unwilling to answer our prayers, but in light of the man shamelessly asking. Jesus is saying, that's how you come to God. You come in need and you come shamelessly. You come with nothing, but you bring your nothing boldly. Let us not bring timid, trepid, trivial prayers to God. Let us not bring half-hearted, half-crafted, half-meant prayer. No, let us come to him in need and let us come to him boldly. Let us be like shameless Jacob, who after wrestling with God until the break of day, cried, I, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He was willing to die for the blessing of God. Are you? See, God's ears are set on those who boldly come to him in shameless prayer. And that is what Jesus wants to teach us. But unlike the man laying down in bed, refusing to get up and asking his friend to stop knocking and go home, Jesus tells us that God is actually calling us to steadfast in prayer. Verse 9, he says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You see, God is not like the friend in bed at all. Jesus is making a lesser to greater contrast to show that God is ready and willing to help us. If even the most unwilling of neighbors can be persuaded to help us in the middle of the night, then how much more will our God in heaven hear us when we pray? You see, unlike the friend, God is calling us to ask, to seek, to knock. All three verbs are in the continuous sense, meaning they are not a single activity, but a persistent, steadfast act. My friends, the posture of our prayer needs to be one of shameless boldness and steadfast persistence. But Jesus understands that we are easily detoured from shamelessly persisting in prayer because our idolatrous hearts often obscure our basis for prayer. We often think our basis is tied to the result of our praying. And so we are either riding the highs of having received what we prayed for, or we are riding the lows 
of not receiving what we asked for. See, sometimes it's, it's really hard for us to understand that our basis of prayer is not based on result, but on relationship. And so he teaches us the basis of our prayer. Let me illustrate this for you before we get into it and we finish up. Sometimes it's really hard for us to understand that our basis of prayer is not based on result. See, it's not. It's based on relationship. And just think about this. In what economy can you come with nothing to offer and yet come boldly? Imagine walking into Publix and saying to the cashier, I have no money and I want lots of stuff and I want it now. I'm sure you would, you would get arrested, right? Right away. I mean, I mean, in what situation can you bring nothing to trade with and yet come with great expectation? That would be audacious, which is exactly Jesus' point. The reason why we come to God empty-handed and shamelessly is because God is a good father. Read verse 11. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, the basis of prayer is the goodness of the Father. Once again, Jesus is using this contrast of the lesser to greater argument. He says, very plainly, you are evil and you give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Father from heaven, who is perfect, give you not only good gifts, but the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit? Jesus is saying to us, the good Father always gives to his sons and daughters, what he sees and he knows with the vision he's been given will bring value and depth and meaning in life for the child. So God, who is infinite in knowledge and wisdom, will at times, as you plead for health, as you plead for life, as you plead for the removal of pain, as you plead for closure, sometimes he will say no. It's not because he's angry with you. It's not because you've done something wrong. It's not because when you were in college, you did that thing that weekend, and he will not let, it, let you forget about it. It's because he loves you, and he can see what you can't see. So perhaps you have been asking God for something, and you have not received it. Well, don't base your prayer life on that fact that you haven't received it. Base it on the fact that your father loves you and you might be asking for a snake or a scorpion without even knowing it. Or perhaps he knows that right now is not the best time for you to receive what you're asking for. My friends, the basis of our prayer is the love of the Father. 
And this is the reason why Jesus begins the prayer saying, whenever you pray, say, our Father. Jesus is saying, Daddy. That's the meaning of the Greek word Abba. It is on the basis of God's love for us as our Father that we come to him in prayer. The opening word of the Lord's prayer governs everything that follows. So when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we are seeking our daddy's honor. When we pray for his kingdom to come, we are praying for the establishment of our daddy's authority. When we pray for our daily bread, we are asking for our daddy to meet our needs. When we pray for forgiveness, we are asking for our daddy to show us mercy. When we pray against temptation, we are asking our daddy to keep us safe. And so as we bring each one of these petitions before the throne of grace, we are praying to God as our loving father. Do you know God as your loving father? You see, in order for you to know God as your loving father, you must know his son as your Lord and Savior. Jesus is not a universalist. Jesus is not teaching here the false doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God that so populates our man-centered culture. In fact, the Bible says that when we believe in Jesus Christ, God gives us the right to become children of God. In John chapter 1. Then he tells us that he helps us to know what, real, what being his child is really about. And God sends us the Holy Spirit. And part of the Spirit's work is to help us pray as children to our Father. And the scripture says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. With the help of the Spirit of God, we come to God as our Father. And we come to Him as loving sons and daughters. So unless you have received Jesus and believed in Him, you stand before God not as a son, but as His enemy. And you have no basis on which to come to God in prayer. No basis at all. Let me finish up with this illustration. Imagine you called the White House, okay? And you said, I want to have lunch with the president. Do you have his calendar? It's going to happen, right? Not. Why? Because of his attributes and yours. He has a power and a position that preclude him from granting you to meet with you. And you don't have the power or position or wisdom or anything else that will persuade him to have lunch with you. You have nothing to offer. Really, nothing. So it's not going to happen, right? But Sasha, the president's daughter, can say to the president, Daddy, I want to have lunch with you. And if lunch doesn't happen right away because he's out of town or or he's on a meeting or something, she can ask again. 
And the president is going to listen to her. And the president is going to say, yes, my dear. And it's going to happen. Now, Sasha has similar attributes as you and I, right? She doesn't have the power. She doesn't have position. She doesn't have wisdom or anything else that would persuade the president to have lunch with her. But what she has is a father-daughter relationship. She is his daughter, and that guarantees that he will answer her. And this is how this applies to us with our Father in heaven. You see, based on his attributes, we could not even dream of coming to God. It is unthinkable that based on who he is and who we are, that we could come to God on friendly terms. But because, because nails went through Christ's hands and feet, and because you believe that that sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins, and you are now in a father-child relationship with God, and even though you, you have nothing to offer him, he accepts you. He answers you. And what is more, <laughs> what is more precious is that he invites you to come to him. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be, be open to you. That is the invitation from our Father to come shamelessly and steadfast with our filth, with our mess. We come to him, we come before him and we come as children and we know he hears us because of Christ. Because of Christ, even in our mess, we have a father who is our daddy. And he is our daddy, that we can be sure that he will help us in our day of infancy. We can be sure that he will teach us to walk spiritually, picking us up when we fall and directing our steps securely. When he is our daddy, we can be sure that he will care for us all the rest of our days. And he will not allow anything to interfere with the purposes in Christ concerning us. So, let us run to him on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For what we will find is a loving father. And that is what we learn in this prayer. As we, as we get close to Wednesday night where we are going to meet as a church as a body of christ as brothers and sisters of the same father to pray together may we keep this in mind and may we keep this prayer in mind because this is what this prayer is telling us is saying this to us the gospel drives us to come shamelessly to our father and be steadfast in our prayer let us pray. Father, indeed, you have been so good to us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your word would help us hallow your name that your word this morning would help us exalt your name in our hearts, with our children, in our families, in our homes, in our church, in our city. Father, may that be the desire of our hearts. May that be the primary petition from now on 
to see your glory and to reveal your glory to all the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.